You're listening to PetLifeRadio.com. On October 2, 1950, three kids, Charlie Brown, Patty, and Shermie, appeared on the funny pages of seven newspapers. Over the next 50 years plus, via television programs and through 17,897 strips, published in as many as 2,600 newspapers in 75 countries and in 21 languages, these three, along with the beloved Beagle Snoopy, the darling Woodstock, and a whole cast of additional characters, have taught us and entertained us. The Peanuts Gang was the invention of Charles M. Schultz, and today visitors to Santa Rosa, California, may explore the art and nuances of Schultz's craft at a museum and research center that carries on his legacy. In this episode of On the Road with Mac and Molly, we speak with museum director and longtime Schultz family friend, Karen Johnson, about the Peanuts Gang and its creator. Most especially today, as this is Pet Life Radio, we'll be chatting about Snoopy, his doghouse, his impersonations, his alter egos, his siblings, and his connection with aviation. All that and more when we return from these messages. So please, sit, stay. We'll be right back after this pause. Sit, stay. We'll be right back after a short pause. Dog Shelter Blues, the new novel by Mark Conkling. This hard-hitting story lights up the world of animal rescue with engaging characters and their pets. Struggling with their own internal demons as they attempt to rescue innocent creatures that sometimes bring a mysterious transforming power to broken lives. Read the first chapter of Dog Shelter Blues free at dogshelterblues.com. Then come along a breathtaking journey that ends with an astonishing triumph of good over evil. Order your copy of Dog Shelter Blues today. Available at Amazon.com and BarnesandNoble.com. Let's Talk Pets on PetLifeRadio.com. Welcome back. You're listening to Pet Life Radio's On the Road with Mac and Molly. I'm your host, Donna Haleson, and joining us now from Santa Rosa, California, is Karen Johnson, Director of the Charles M. Schultz Museum and Research Center. Welcome, Karen. Thank you, Donna. It's really a pleasure to talk to everybody out there about this remarkable man and his dog, so to speak. (laughs) Well, I noted on the museum's website a timeline of Charles Schultz's life. And Mm -hmm. what struck me immediately was that the day after he was born, which was in 1922 in Minneapolis, an uncle gave him the nickname Sparky. After the racehorse character Sparkplug in a comic strip that was very popular at the time, Barney Google. So it would seem almost from birth he had a connection with comic strips. And, and I wonder if you might walk us through some of his early life, sharing with us along the way how he brought the experiences from his childhood into the Peanuts comic strip. 
Well, I think that if you read anything about Charles Schultz, one of the things that he said throughout his life, especially as his strip became famous and a worldwide phenomenon, uh, when interviewers would ask him about his life, he said, well, to know me is to read my strip. I put my whole life into my strip. And to start at the beginning, uh, in 1922, the Funnies Papers, as they were called then, were really our social uh, phenomenon in our country. It's where everybody read the papers to be entertained on the weekend, and it's what people talk about at work the next week. Did you see this in Prince Valiant? Wasn't that hysterical in, in Dick Tracy? So it really was a cultural phenomenon. And the fact that he is named, as you said, 12 hours after his birth, after the famous horse in Barney Google, Sparkplug, is almost poetic because from the beginning, he knew he wanted to be a cartoonist. He would say to people, all my life, I knew I wanted to be a cartoonist. You know, as a child, he grew up in a very stable family, a mother and a father, and he was, his father was a barber. Charlie Brown's father was a barber. Sparky was very persistent as a young man in terms of he had excellent drawing skills, but he always wanted to fine-tune his ability to cartoon. He learned a letter very, very early on and was considered one of the best letterers in the industry. And his focus always was on creating a cartoon. And he went to World War II, and the World War II, of course, I should you have talked about somewhat about Snoopy, that informed where we got the flying ace down the road. That informed a very important series of strips when Charlie Brown goes off to camp and his head turns into like a baseball, which I can talk about later. So every experience he had along the way informs that strip. He comes back from World War II, gets a job at art instruction school in, in Minneapolis, and he decides... This is what he's going to do. He starts fine-tuning. His strips, even in the early days, were very, very different. When you look at Little Folks, which was the strip he produced first, which was the precursor to Peanuts, it's very simple, very almost Picasso-ish in that it's, you know, the lines are simple and there's a lot of negative space and a lot of philosophy. And that's what ultimately, as you said, led to Peanuts in 1950. When was Snoopy introduced, and how did he make his entrance? And I wonder also if there was a dog or if there were dogs in Schultz's life that served as inspiration for this particular character. Yes, it is a straightforward statement. From He had a dog when he was, I think, 10 or 12. His name was Spike, and he was a mix of a pointer and a beagle. And he thought that Spike was this phenomenon. He knew a vocabulary of 50 words. He used to drink Coca-Cola. He ate hot potatoes. And ironically, his Charles Schultz's very first drawing that was illustrated and in the newspaper was in Ripley's Believe It or Not, when at 13 years old, he sent in a drawing of Spike and saying, this is a wonder dog because he knows 50 words, he drinks Coca-Cola, and he eats hot potatoes. And that is the precursor to Snoopy. And uh, Charles Schultz would say that. He'd said, you know, well, I had this dog when I was young that could do anything, and I always would look at him and wonder, you know, what is that dog thinking? So I, we would say that's a direct relationship to Snoopy. Snoopy appeared really fast. He was in within the first month, but people, what people don't know is that he was a puppy. He was a little tiny puppy on all fours. The bird at that time was a black crow, a very realistic black crow. And very early in the strip, Snoopy obeyed Charlie Brown. He was appreciative of getting his dinner. 
and he was just the little puppy that hung around with the little kids. It was over the next six or seven years that Snoopy started developing his own personality, getting a little more independent in terms of his thinking, and by 57, 58, Snoopy stands up, and Charles Schultz said that's when he took over the strip, and his fantasy life began in, in earnest. I read in a 1997 interview that Schultz had summed up the character in this way, that he has to retreat into his fanciful world in order to survive. Otherwise, he leads a kind of dull, miserable life. I don't envy dogs the lives they have to live. And then he also said that the best idea he ever had in the strip was to move Snoopy from inside his doghouse to the rooftop. And I wondered if we might start as we launch into our whole discussion of Snoopy, what would we find if we were to look inside his doghouse and what would those possessions tell us about his character? Well, he was quite an aficionado in many ways. First of all, he had a pool table. He and Woodstock and his buddies, you know, on New Year's Eve, they had a lot of, they played pool on New Year's Eve. He had a lot of Van Goghs and he had a wife. He was quite a painter and a collector. He had a root beer area, of course. But I think the most important thing is every time Charles Schultz put something inside that doghouse, it informed as much about Charles Schultz as it did about Snoopy. But it allowed you to understand that Snoopy was quite a dog of the world in terms of understanding culture. You mentioned that the character of Snoopy started off on all fours as a puppy. And then as he evolved, he ended up on on two feet. What other physical changes and other character developments were made as the years went on? Well, I think that you can't isolate Snoopy from any other character because when you come to the museum, you see how all the characters changed. This is an artist who's growing and changing himself. So as an example, the characters, when they started out in the early 50s, they look like they're three or four years old. They then get up to six or eight. Snoopy followed the exact same arc. An artist starts changing things. I mean, I wouldn't say it was intentional about Snoopy versus Charlie Brown versus Lucy as they evolved. It had more to do with Charles Schultz's art. So I, you know, I don't feel I can say that his ear got longer because Charles Schultz wanted to make sure that it did this or that. It was just the evolution of an artist with all of his characters. But it is the point that when Snoopy stood up, that's when the fantasy world took over and allowed Charles Schultz to just take the strip in so many ways. He was no longer a dog on all fours. Well, can you share a bit about some of Snoopy's impersonations? Maybe we might start there. And these, I think, range from a moose to a pelican to Mickey Mouse. And can you tell us a little bit about those? Well, you know, at any given time, whatever the gag was, I mean, the vulture is one of my favorite that, you know, he's leaning over in the, in the tree and just about ready to fall over, but he's got, he's got, he's looking down and pointing like he's a vulture. That's one of my particular favorites. And as you said, he puts on his mouse ears. One of our, also our favorites is April Fool's Day because there's a wonderful Sunday strip where, you know, Rudy's doing April Fool's and the very last panel is Snoopy dressed like a clown with a big nose and running around like a court gesture and Charlie Brown's saying basically, why can't I have a dog like everybody else's dog? But, you know, he was a world-famous writer. He was an editor. He was an astronaut. You know, he rode bikes occasionally. So he did just about everything he wanted to do because he stood up on his two feet. 
These were sort of Walter Mitty-esque alter egos that he took on, and, and maybe one of the, probably the most popular, I suppose, would be his World War I flying mm-hmm. ace and all of the battles mm-hmm. he had with, uh, with the Red Baron. Can, mm-hmm. can you elaborate a little bit on that and how, how that literally <laughs> took off? Well, I think like anything else, you know, I'm very, very careful about what I say is the truth, you know, in that I don't mean the truth. What I'm saying is accurately why Sparky was thinking a certain thing at a certain time. Like any cartoonist or any artist, they're always looking for a gag. They're always looking for a new theme. This is a wonderful story about who thought up the Red Baron first. And it's a debate between his oldest son, Monty Schultz, and himself. And this is all recorded that Monty claims that he's responsible for the story line of the Red Baron because he was actually making a model in school of that particular plane and then he kept talking to his dad back and forth about it and he contends that's what his fa- that's why his father started thinking in that theme. Charles Schultz would say, I'm not sure about that, but it is true that my son was making that particular model of a World War I uh, plane at the time. So I think it was a pretty standard thing an artist trying to think up something new, taking anything out of his environment. Could have been that he saw Monty doing this and started fantasizing about, wow, he could be this flying ace who takes on and then takes on the, you know, the ultimate enemy. But keep in mind, as a writer and an artist, it gave him a storyline for a long period of time that, you know, he falls in love with the French poodle. He's constantly on the quest and he meets people on the journey. So it gave a storyline that is eternal. When was this particular aspect of the character introduced? You know, I cannot give you a specific date. I'm embarrassed to tell you that. I don't know. It had to be early 60s, but I don't know the specific date. Well, one thing that really struck me, too, is how often the image of Snoopy has been appropriated in aviation, whether we're talking about NASA, U.S. Air Force, even the airport in Sonoma. Can you share a little bit about that? Well, I'll tell you, one of the things that I think Mr. Schultz, Charles Schultz, was most proud of was the Apollo 10, which was called the Dress Rehearsal to the Moon. It's when Gene Cernan, Tom Stafford, and John Young, their mission was to get as close as they could to the moon. They came within five miles of landing on the moon because they had to check everything out, so to speak, for Neil Armstrong because Apollo 11 was next. They named the capsule Snoopy and they named the module Charlie Brown. And that, Mr. Schultz has said many times, was one of his greatest honors, that the fact that his dog and his characters were going into space. Conversely, at the same time, Snoopy, there's something called the Silver Snoopy Award that is still given in NASA by the astronauts to members of, well, members of NASA who create safety for the astronauts. And this came out of the unfortunate fire that happened, I believe it was Apollo 1 or 2, when we lost uh, three astronauts when there was the fire in the capsule. And President Johnson turned to NASA and he said, how do we get the momentum back? How do we ensure safety? How do we make this front and center? They had many suggestions and they came up with, in 1964, keep in mind, Peanuts is at its height in our country and in the world, came up with the Silver Snoopy Award, which still exists today. 
So the combination of having Snoopy be part of the culture of NASA, but then on top of that, having it be something that was Apollo 10 was pretty remarkable. And then, of course, pilots all over the world. We get calls still to this day. Is it okay if I paint the flying ace on the back of, you know, my biplane? Is it okay if I paint it, you know, at a local airport? I mean, people still want that flying ace symbol. Snoopy has also given his image, or his image is also in place at the Sonoma County Airport as well, yes? That's right, because soon after Charles Schultz died, the Board of Supervisors renamed the airport the Charles M. Schultz Airport. So, of course, they would have the symbol of the flying ace out there, absolutely. You mentioned along the way here about Snoopy being a novelist, and one of the images I think we see again and again and again finds him sitting at a typewriter hammering out the initial words, it was a dark and stormy night. Why did Charles Schultz decide to bring that aspect into the character, do you know? Well, I don't think we know specifically, other than, as you said earlier, Charles Schultz thinks about a dog's life. You know, they eat. They sleep, they chase things, they lay down, they're inside their doghouse. What do they do? And I think it was a very good tool for him to tell stories. And I think that it's nothing more than that. I think a lot of times people will punt myself, I would include my profession in this, you'll tend to pontificate about what an artist was really doing. And one of the things, you know, and on and on and on, and one of the things that Charles Schultz would say to us, this is just a cartoon. I'm just looking for a gag. So we have to hold on to the fact that on any given day, this is a writer who's looking for a cartoon, looking for a storyline, and he probably thought that would be a wonderful, once again, extend the life, a chapter that he could use over and over again about this struggling young, you know, writer who always starts with that one very great line. You know, they always say, all of us have ten good pages in us, but it's how can you get to the real novel type thing. So I think it's predicated on that, him creating another wonderful fantasy world, happens to be about writing, and it gave him such wonderful gags throughout his life. Did he ever speak about inspiration, I guess, and how do you manage to produce 17,897 strips over such a long period of time and to try to remain fresh and come up with new ideas? Had he addressed that in any comments made publicly or or to you over the years? Well, yes. I mean, we have him talking about it with interviewers, and in a way, it's a wonderful, wonderful part of him. He also does not pontificate and get too philosophical. This is that really wonderful Midwest part of him. He would say to people, they'd say, how do you do it day after day? He'd say, well, that's my job. It was just that simple. Or people would say, you're so famous now and you have so much money, you can have other people write it, you can have other people color it. And he said... Arnold Palmer wouldn't hire someone to swing their golf clubs. No, this is mine. This is what I do every day. It's my job. So in a way, he had this wonderful Midwest sensibility. Wait a minute. This is what I do, and that's what I do every day. The other thing I admire about Charles Schultz is he said, I used to always sit down at the drawing table, and I felt such a sense of responsibility because the funny papers, the comics, they were put into the newspapers to sell newspapers. And he said, I always think about that salesperson out there who's selling that newspaper 
and am I, you know, I am keeping, am I keeping my contract with him to make sure that I am making the best strip in the world so that he can sell that newspaper, which I love the fact that he said he would sit down and think about the editors and the salespeople who have to sell that newspaper, which, and that's as much as he ever said about that. He never made it more than it was. That's a wonderful place for just to for us to take a quick break so we have our commercial announcements. And when we return, I really would love to chat a bit about the magic of Snoopy, what we learn from the Peanuts gang and from the character of Charles Schultz. And, uh, and then talk a little bit just about the museum as well and a new exhibit that you have coming up. So let's do that. Let's just take a break. And folks, we just ask that you would sit and stay and and we'll take a pause. Sit, stay. We'll be right back after a short pause. Hi, this is Tim Link, animal communicator and pet expert and host of Animal Rights on Pet Life Radio. Have you ever wanted to know what your pet is really thinking? Do you want to find out if they truly understand what you're trying to tell them? Ever wish you could build a better understanding and closer relationship with your pet? Well, now you can. Learning to communicate with animals is a four-part on-demand workshop. In the workshop, you'll learn the essential techniques that are necessary to communicate with animals, including what is animal communication, breathing correctly to achieve the perfect state to communicate with your animals at a deeper level, using guided meditation exercises and method to communicate with animals, and how to send and receive information from your animals. So if you're wanting to learn how to communicate and connect with your animals at a deeper level, visit PetLifeRadio.com forward slash workshop and purchase and download Learning to Communicate with Animals. You'll be glad you did. Are you crazy about cats? If so, check out The World is Your Litter Box, Deluxe Edition. This clever how-to manual for cats, written by a cat named Quasi, contains more laughs than should be allowable in one book, and is poignantly underscored by the combative yet loving relationship between Quasi and his human. The World is Your Litter Box, Deluxe Edition, is guaranteed to have you laughing your tail off. So, treat yourself to a copy today. Available from Amazon. Having a rough day? Longing for the dog days of summer? Think your fun furry friend lives a dog's life? Well, find out everything you're begging to know as Pet Life Radio presents It's a Doggy Dog World with pet expert and award-winning author Liz Palaika. Kate Abbott and Petra Burke. Every dog has his day, and you'll find out how to make your dog's day fun and rewarding every week on demand, only on PetLifeRadio.com. Let's Talk Pets. Let's Talk Pets. On Pet Life Radio. PetLifeRadio.com. And we're back. You are listening to On the Road with Mac and Molly on Pet Life Radio Network. Again, with us today is Karen Johnson, director of the Schultz Museum in Santa Rosa. And we, before the break, had been chatting a bit about getting into some of the character of Charles Schultz himself. And I wonder if you might tell us a little bit about what you believe to be the magic of Snoopy and, and really the, the whole Peanuts gang. Why do you think it continues to be such a pop culture phenomenon? 
Well, I think it's to me personally and to anyone who talks about it, we see ourselves in it. It's that simple. We see our angst. We see our happiness. We see our pain. We see our hopes. We see humor. We see our relationship to our siblings. We see our relationship and love of our dogs. I think it's about the basic humanity that continues to draw us and it doesn't change from generation to generation. Yes, different elements of generations are different, but not the basic phenomenon of the emotion of how we relate to the world. I think it is that simple. Lucy, she represents that crabby part of us. Lucy represents, oh, I'm, you know, my sister's like that. My, I've seen my brother do that. The little redheaded girl, I'm a redhead. I was thrilled when I was a teenager and saw Charlie Brown in love with the little redheaded girl. I mean, Snoopy, we, dogs, I know the world is split between cats and dog lovers and stuff, but everybody has a relationship to their dog when they love them. And they're all unique onto them. And oh, his characteristics or her characteristics are this. So I think once again, it was this universality of telling the story through these characters, telling us about ourselves and laughing, too. You have a new exhibition at the museum, which will be on display through October 13. It's entitled Barking Up the Family Tree. And featured in this are 70 peanut strips with Snoopy's band of brothers, so Spike and Marbles and Olaf and Andy and Sister Belle. Can you tell us a little bit about these characters and uh, how they interacted with Snoopy? Well, once again, I mean, this is, you know, you have the characters in the strip and then you have the characters that showed up in the movie, you know, because we have a movie about how the puppies were all born at Daisy Hill Farm. But this is just about the strip relationships. So you have a storyline in there because, you know, Spike lives in Needles. And when Charles Schultz was a small boy, his parents moved to Needles, California. So that's in the back of kind of his life, a Needles, California, and that's where he puts Spike. And Olaf represents, we can't, we don't really know completely what Olaf represents, although he did have a dog that had the same kind of hair. Belle, I think, is just a play on having a sister. So each one of them represents a different side of Charles Schultz that, once again, as an artist and a writer, he plays out. I mean, one of my favorite things is the relationship between Spike and Snoopy, and they're writing back and forth all the time, and one's journeying to the other one, and one's going to St. Paul, the other one's going to uh, Needles to see each other. Some of the Thanksgiving conversations, you know, when Snoopy breaks his leg or his knee, and his brothers and sisters come to see him. So it's the storyline about all of that. Can you tell us a little bit about what visitors to the museum would find and perhaps about some of the things that even go on behind the scenes through the research center? Well, one of the things, when you come to the Charles M. Schultz Museum, I always say to people, you are going to see the characters through Charles Schultz's eyes because our, our mission is to tell the story of Charles Schultz as a writer and an artist. So when you come into the museum, you're going to see all the biographical information about Charles Schultz that informed the strip, as I said earlier. His father, Charles Schultz's father, was a barber. Charlie Brown's father is a barber. There are so many parallel things. So you learn a lot about Charles Schultz. You're going to see his studio, actually the drawing table he worked at for 50 years. And he used to say he's going to, you know, he'll retire when he uh, wears a hole into his desk. He almost wore a hole into his desk. You have the privilege of seeing a nine-minute film of him talking and drawing at the same time, which is so informative. 
And as you said, there's a strip rotation gallery downstairs where Barking Up the Family Tree is right now, and you get to, it's what I call, it's like you're sitting behind Charles Schultz and standing behind his shoulder watching him draw. You get to see the actual originals, you get to see a little whiteout, you get to see a little erasure, you get to see some pencil lines. So you get to get involved in that man's art. The first gallery is our big gallery, and that changes twice a year. And right now we have Mid-Century Modern, which I love because we're doing that in conjunctions with the Eames Foundation. And when we're doing it straight out of the 1952 strip that Mr. Schultz drew of the Van Pelts and the Browns uh, living room, which are Eames furniture and all of the, the very elaborate drapes that are designed, and we're able to show all the real furniture of the times that got reflected into the strip. We also have a research center where scholars come and uh, those who are studying culture, studying the impact of Charles Schultz on culture, talking about the impact of culture on peanuts. So we've had three scholars in the last year. It's also where we keep all of our archives on uh, his papers, his correspondence, his personal papers, and of course all the books and publications. You had said that Charles Schultz was not one to pontificate, but I wonder if, is there a particular message or a philosophy that he ever articulated that, or that you would have seen that you think is really central to Peanuts? Well... No, I cannot say there's one statement. I mean, as I said to you, he said a lot of times when people would begin to pontificate, hey, this is just a cartoon strip. I'm just a guy looking for a gag. Other times he would talk about the everydayness of life. Other times he would talk about, as you said, what does a dog do all day long and what's the fantasy life? He was very modest when people would ask him, why is this such a universal thing? And he would say, I don't really know. I'm just a cartoonist. And I think it's that genius between being a Midwest modest man and an artist who was very proud of what he did. But he just, he, what he would tell you is, I just did what I could do. Donna, I don't think there's anything more to it than that. I mean, and that's kind of also <laughs> what I think is the genius also. Right, absolutely. Well, is there anything else that you want to be certain to mention as we close out our time together? Well, I think the one thing that if you come to the Charles M. Schultz Museum in Santa Rosa, not only are you going to see the museum, but you see where he lived and worked because the museum was built on the property that has his ice arena on it that he built 45 years ago, a gorgeous ice arena where people can ice skate and have lunch. We have a huge gift shop for people that love peanuts. And it's also the property where his actual studio is. So when you come to the Schultz Museum, you're actually stepping into Charles Schultz's life, which I think is a wonderful, wonderful thing for people. There are some uh, other remarkable pieces of art. Uh, my visit to the museum, I think I was particularly struck by the wall with uh, the, uh, I don't know, what do I call it, a conglomeration of all the, the strips, everything kind of put together into one large piece. And you realize uh-huh. the, the breadth of the work is, is just astonishing. Absolutely. I mean, in our great hall, what you're speaking about is the tile wall, which has 3,800 ceramic tiles of daily strips. And uh, a gentleman named Yoshio Tani, who was a designer in Japan around the Snoopy towns, was able to take the night strips and configure them into the black line ink and create the famous football scene where Charlie Brown is getting ready to kick the football and Lucy is holding it. So, yes, it has 3,800 strips and you 
you know, it's huge and it's the whole far side of our great hall and you walk in and you, you're, if you're 50 feet from it, you look like you're looking at the, at a whole strip drawing of the football scene. The closer you get, you get into the 3,800 strips. It's quite remarkable. Well, and uh, an interesting way of looking at the legacy of Charles Schultz. And we are very grateful to you today for being with us and for the work that you do to continue to share Snoopy and all of the gang and uh, and Charles Schultz with the world. We um, are grateful to our listeners for tuning in today. And I would note that we have information, more information, photographs that would be found on Pet Life Radio's On the Road with Mac and Molly blog page. And if you have any questions or comments related to this episode, I would invite you to email me at the address that you'll find there. And again, Karen, thank you so much for being with us today. Well, Donna, thank you and your listeners for the interest that they have in Charles Schultz. We really, really appreciate that. (laughs) Well, you know, as always, I do hope that you will have had a good time listening today, and I hope that you will be with us next time as we head out on the road with Mac and Molly. Let's Talk Pets, every week on demand only on PetLifeRadio.com.